You're listening to Solving Climate Naturally. Join us as we unpack nature's role in tackling climate change and talk to the people leading the way. Welcome to Solving Climate Naturally, where we speak with experts and leaders at the cutting edge of natural climate solutions and help demystify this growing field. We're your hosts. I'm Ida. I'm Kate. And I'm Julia. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Donaga Markegaard. Donaga is a regenerative rancher, wildlife tracker, author, and thought leader around nature and our role within it. She and her husband own and operate Markegaard Family Grass-Fed and lease land encompassing over 11,000 acres across the Bay Area in Northern California. She's an expert and practitioner in this space. She's actively managing land and applying regenerative practices, advocating for policy and supporting other um, family farms and ranchers and educating the public around this important work. Donaga, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's great to be on the uh, call with you all. Amazing. So let's start at the beginning. And can you tell us a bit about how you came to be doing what you are today with Market Guard Family Grassfed? Yeah, well, it was sort of by accident, or you might call synchronicity, that uh, I came down to the Bay Area. I'm originally from the Pacific Northwest, uh, where it's very uh, moist and we get a lot of rain and we're surrounded by rivers and lakes and fresh water um, down here to the Bay Area to actually study uh, one of the apex predators, the mountain lions that uh, are uh, in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And uh, there wasn't a lot of data on them back when I was uh, studying them in the early 2000s. And so I was uh, one of the first ones uh, to get pictures and video of the mountain lions in this region. Uh, And I was working as a wildlife tracker, um, specializing in large predators. Um, That was sort of my my passion was to get on the trail of a pack of wolves or a bear or a mountain lion and just to really learn uh, their behavior and uh, how they play a key role in the ecological function. And so while I was tracking mountain lions, uh, I was uh, neighboring uh, a cattle ranch And I noticed that um, where the grasslands were grazed, sort of on the other side of the fence, uh, where the cattle were grazing, there was more biodiversity than the side where I lived, where the cattle had been removed. And uh, that biodiversity was in the form of grassland birds or large amounts of voles, which are this... uh, a cute little rodent that cruises around right at the ground level and is sort of a larder for bobcats and coyotes and foxes and aerial predators. And uh, so they're sort of an important species to pay attention to in grasslands and their abundance. Uh, and I noticed there was uh, more abundance where the cattle had been grazing. So it was uh, really interesting to me to see these different management practices where one side of the fence was completely rested, sort of, quote unquote, gone back to nature. And the other side of the fence was being grazed by a large herd of uh, cattle. And so uh, I I was working in the area, still traveling quite a bit um, to uh, work in uh, places like Idaho, Alaska, Germany, uh, studying sort of the reintroduction of wolves. And 
through uh, happen chance, I, I met my uh, now husband. Um, and uh, then I got really into figuring out ways that we could uh, transition his uh, cow-calf cattle operation to 100% grass-fed, grass-finished. And so uh, that's that's how I started ranching was uh, I fell in love with a rancher and uh, had a deep passion to doing something uh, that would enhance the both the habitat and the abundance of uh, the species that I had grown so close to by spending countless hours following their tracks or getting up close and personal to them. And so I found that uh, in the last uh, 20 years of my ranching career, I guess 20 plus years of my ranching career, I've actually been able to play an integral role in the regeneration of species. Donaga, I love your background. Um, I think you lived out my childhood dreams of tracking <laughs> animals, uh, and you know, <laughs> and the, I would love to hear how those skills you that you um, acquired or that those experiences, you know, contribute to your role as a rancher. You know, and and, and how do you think about um, that experience in translating to the way you ranch today? Yeah. So what really drew me to, uh, connection, nature connection and, uh, was, was that I was looking for, you know, as a, as a youth, I was looking for a way that, uh, I could, I could belong. (laughs) You know, we all go through that phase, uh, in that early adolescent teenage time where we're sort of looking for our place. And so, uh, uh, I was able to immerse in a uh, full-time wilderness school in Washington State. Uh, so we were, you know, I guess you would call us unschoolers because uh, we had no, you know, set curriculum except studying nature. And uh, I was also adopted by a Lakota elder. And uh, I was immersed in um, the spirituality of um, his people and his traditions. And so that really brought me a greater understanding of this indigenous knowledge that it's more than just studying um, things in isolation, but everything is very interconnected and we are in relationship with all life. And so it's from that basis of understanding, understanding nature and our place in nature, that we are nature, that we can then work to have knowledge of place, immerse in our senses, and really see and feel what is happening around us and have that kind of connection. So it was there where I found my <laughs> sort of uh, teenage belonging, like you know, that the, the sort of the awkward adolescence led to uh, finding my way to nature to really find my place and find where where I belong and where I could uh, play a vital role in, 
in integrating with, uh, with all life. And, and do you mind following up, Donnega, with a specific example of how this worldview and philosophy and understanding of how you connect with nature and how everything is interconnected, how does that change the way you particularly ranch? And, you know, maybe a specific example of a particular practices that you employ to, to take this into account and translate that beautiful philosophy into action. Yeah, I mean, really... Because of the time that we're living right now, where we're seeing unprecedented extremes in weather, um, really, I see the only way to make your living um, from the land and producing food is to have a deep understanding of how the region that you're, say, working in or in relationship with, how that region functions, how the water cycle functions, how the the grass um, growth functions and the carbon cycle. And so um, how I really translate that into my current work is that uh, I'm I'm really out there. I'm out in the field, um, you know, walking the pastures daily and um, really using this sort of intuitive grazing um, is what I'm calling it of uh, when when the cattle need to be moved, because it's all about movement. You know, there's no stagnation in nature. Um, you know, when you, when we think about, you know, sort of the grass plant, which is, uh, one of the, you know, iconic, um, you know, say a perennial grass plant is kind of an iconic, uh, um, plant to, uh, draw down carbon because it's always growing and uh, they're very resilient to drought and fire. And so when you think of a, a grass uh, plant, if, if they're stagnant um, and in this climate, uh, they, they can be stagnant if there's no disturbance. So if that plant is stagnant, then that leads to oxidation. And we've seen this with the data um, where uh, soil scientists will come out and they will measure the carbon in, um, you know, across the fence line uh, where there are no cattle and those grasses are, say, stagnant, where that decomposition cycle is not happening because the grasses die and they lay over. There's nothing to trample them. There's nothing to graze them. And those plants are actually... Um, emitting carbon um, through that oxidation process. Whereas uh, that same plant <laughs> where there is grazing and trampling and disturbance and then a recovery period where that grass can be vibrant and grow is actually drawing down carbon into the soil. And it's pretty, it's pretty drastic, the difference between I know, the same species of plant, same soil type, but different forms of management and disturbance. So I like to say that a lot of our work is 
all about movement and uh, stagnation in nature leads to decline and oxidation. And just like our own bodies, uh, when we're stagnant, that leads to decline in health. It's the same in nature. Nature is always moving and uh, not just one part is moving, but every single part is moving. And it's up to us to figure out how to move that in a way that regenerates life sort of in, in harmony. And so I like to say as a regenerative rancher, I'm always, I'm always on the move. You know, I'm always walking, I'm always observing. And then I am then moving the cattle through the pastures, uh, sort of timing that with the growth of the grass. So this time of year, um, as the grass is grow, uh, starting to get into its rapid growth cycle, I'm moving the cattle more often. And when it starts to be in its slow growth, cycle. Um, I'm moving the cattle less often, maybe spreading them out in larger pastures so they can get the nutrition they need. And then as the cattle are moving, they are moving the plants. And then the plants in turn um, are moving the soil. So the roots are moving, the roots are dying off and adding carbon, uh, that liquid carbon pathway, that flow is, is always moving. Um, you know, the things that are both seen and unseen. So uh, when we think about regenerative agriculture, um, we think about movement. And uh, I'm a big fan of um, the work of, of Katie Bowman, uh, which a couple of her books are Move Your DNA or Movement Matters, that we really need to think about how we relate to nature, how we relate to food, and how we can help to move for our food and not only for the health of the planet, but for the health of ourselves, our families, and for our, our, our greater uh, human community. I love that framing as intuitive grazing and around the role of movement in that. Um, so as part of our our preparation for this discussion, you'd shared with us the super interesting analysis that Point Blue Conservation did of the lands that you and your husband manage. And they've sort of been tracking over the last six or seven years what's been going on ecologically in this region. Um, and uh, there were some just really interesting bits about the impacts on soil carbon and around you know, avian biodiversity. Um, could, you, could you sort of tell us a little bit more about those findings? Yeah, yeah, it's great because you know, like I said, I've been we've been raising and selling grass-fed beef for over 20 years now, and uh, when we first started, it was just a real niche uh, niche market, and it was more about the health of the animal that the animals treated uh, humanely, and that there was more nutrient density in that meat. Um, now we're starting to see that uh, we're gaining more attention um, with these uh, vast rangelands that these grass-fed animals are living on. Because, you know, in a sense, if you take the animal off the grass and put it in a feedlot, you're sort of undoing all the good that you did because you're feeding them 
GMO corn and soy that was uh, raised in an industrial um, monoculture and releasing massive amounts of carbon and dependent on um, chemical agriculture. So um, first and for- foremost, we want to choose grass-fed. <laughs> uh, and so I, I, I just want to point that out that uh, we... Um, our animals are on grass a hundred percent of their lives. Um, and they're finished on grass. They are not, not put in a feedlot and they are not fed grains. Uh, so while they are here on the grass, they are, they are doing the work of, of, you know, that symbiotic relationship of large herds of animals, uh, and moving across these grasslands, um, And so what, uh, you know, sort of more attention has been um, given to the role of these vast rangelands. And we work closely with a number of different scientists, um, Point Blue Conservation Science, uh, UC Berkeley, uh, a number of different uh, ecologists from uh, USGS or uh, the Audubon Society that are looking at, um, you know, looking at different indicators of ecosystem health. And so uh, Point Blue has a very comprehensive rangeland monitoring network across the state of California. And they're looking at vegetation, they're looking at grassland birds, and they're looking at soil. And I'm going to point out that soil is uh, still a very uh, sort of newish uh, study for science, and there's still so much that we have to learn. And uh, and we also want to remember that, you know, Nature doesn't work in isolation, so that soil is going to be um, connected with everything else, the grasses, the the forbs, all of the plants, the birds, the insects, the mammals. Uh, So we really need to study nature as a whole. Um, So that's what's great about Point Blue is they are looking at that holistic perspective and, uh, you know, looking at indicators, not just of soil carbon, but also of um, grassland biodiversity and the abundance of uh, indicator species, um, in particular, um, these grassland birds, which are the largest group of birds um, that are in decline in this country. And that's a result of that uh, uh, tilling of the prairie to plant crops. So you can have grass-fed beef and you can have grassland birds at the same time. Um, So some of the results that have come out from these studies, uh, just a, a recent one, uh, was that we had a 12% increase in soil carbon. And that was sort of like, for the scientists, that was a, a big, that was a big deal because throughout the state, um, this was sort of at the, their, their study was sort of at the tail end of California's mega drought, um, which I don't think we've really uh, crawled our way out of yet. But um, they were seeing a decline in soil carbon in most of the rangeland soils they were testing. Um, so to see an increase of that magnitude um, was 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 really eye opening and uh, really showed that we can play a big part 
in um, increasing that soil carbon through uh, moving those animals through these grasslands and timing that with the health of the growth of these perennials. And we're also seeing an increase in, in those perennials. So uh, there's some really key uh, per, uh, native perennial bunch grasses in these grasslands here where, where uh, we steward. And um, you know, one of them is the purple needle grass and one of them is the California oak grass. And we have, um, I think, 33% perennial grass cover on uh, one of our ranches. And I think about 13% of that is California oak grass. So that is, and that, that percentage is increasing. So we want those perennials because they're gonna be growing year round. Uh, their their roots are going to go deep and be able to tap into nutrients and minerals and water deep down um, into the layers of soil. And they're also going to be able to draw carbon down in that lower um, soil surface to hold that and store that long term. Um, so we're seeing an increase in soil carbon, an increase in these uh, indicator grass plants, um, specifically these perennial native bunch grass and we're seeing uh, an increase in uh, uh, grassland birds, such as the, um, uh, sorry, the grasshopper sparrow. <laughs> um, so the, uh, the nesting habitat is preserved because we don't graze the grass so short, but we don't let the grass get too long where they can't kind of get in there, build their nest and be able to poke their head up and look around for predators. So it, it's really complex. And not every pasture is managed like that. For instance, we have one pasture on our Jenner Headlands Preserve where we've got all the cattle in there and it's a serpentine soil. So uh, a soil that's low in um, sort of soil carbon, yet high in diversity. Um, but not necessarily mass. Uh, so, so we're not just looking at soil carbon. We're also looking at, we, we don't want any of these species to go away. And there's uh, endemic wildflowers on the Jenner Headlands Preserve that if the cattle didn't come in this time of year and graze the grass really short, then those uh, wildflowers would be shaded out and over time they would start to disappear. So um, that's why, you know, there's no sort of prescription. There's no rules. It really has to be a deep understanding of how nature functions and our role in that movement. Super interesting. I mean, it seems like the, the the benefits of regenerative practices were were shown to be quite quite significant and, and quite um, especially in light of of the drought. Um, I wonder if there's anything from these findings that has surprised you as you either from this particular study or just in as a practitioner over the years. Um, anything new that was learned that maybe changed your approach to land management, or was it more of uh, proving proving the outcomes of these practices as expected. Yeah, I think that uh, one thing 
uh, I mean, I've, I learn a lot. I learn every day. Um, I learn something new, uh, when I'm out there walking around and, and looking at these different species. And I think, um, you know, sort of a misconception is like that nature, um, wants to be, uh, like, like, especially coming from, coming from Washington and, uh, where, sometimes the forest just seems so impenetrable. Like you could just approach this wall of green and uh, it can be, it can be intimidating. Right. Um, So I think there's this misconception that nature should just be full of, um, you know, I don't, I don't know what are you like a, like a messy, like a messy garden or something that's overgrown and all kinds of, uh, you know, all kinds of plants and understory and everything like that. And so, you know, working with grasslands, sometimes, you know, nature wants to just have all that cleaned up. It's like cleaning house. And so we've seen places where, say, uh, a pond um, or a vernal pool has been fenced where the cattle can't get in there and it's messy, right? There's a lot of vegetation where, you know, you can't, you don't feel like you can even penetrate that. Um, and then there's areas where, um, the, there's vernal pools where the cattle are not fenced out of and, but they're moved through and they're coming in and they're clearing out and, um, some of that vegetation. And, you know, we, we walk around and like biologists are surprised too, because, you know, you, you walk by some of these vernal pools where the cattle have grazed and there's incredible populations of red-legged frogs, which is an, an um, endangered species. So I think that uh, we need to sort of shift our perception of what is health and what a healthy environment looks like to say, okay, how did the indigenous people steward this land? And what was that historical ideal? And, and why? Like going back to some of the basics, <laughs> shelter, food, water, survival from predators, um, and feed, you know, feeding our family. So, you know, the, the forests were open. Uh, they, the understory was cleared. They, you know, you wanted to be able to see, uh, see into them to see if a, you know, a huge grizzly bear was, was coming. And, uh, the grasslands, uh, were, were trampled. And so I think that, uh, you know, a big, a big thing for me is like, okay, we need to look at, we need to shift the way we look at disturbance. Like it's okay to disturb things. It's okay to go in there and clean up the understory of, um, our forests because that's going to make them more resilient to wildfires. It's okay to go in and bring animals into, um, graze around sensitive habitat areas, but then move them on and, and let that biodiversity, uh, come back. So I think, I think it's a constant learning, um, process for everyone because, um, you know, so, so much of the status quo is like, oh, 
there's a sensitive habitat area, put a fence around it and don't go in it. Like don't even walk, you know, like don't even let your kids go in there and, and climb a tree or, or pick a branch. Like, no, sometimes you need to go and coppice that whole willow tree so that it can flourish. And that's what the indigenous people did that's where they got their basket making material. And that's how they got their, their fiber and kept that healthy was to go in there and, and, um, you know, and, and, and harvest that. So I think we really need to shift the way we interact with nature. And instead of this sort of hands-off approach, let's look at how our actions can actually improve the health and productivity. No, I really love that. Um, we had a guest on uh, last year, Bronson Griscom, who spoke about almost sort of the the false, like the the false view that that folks have of sort of the fragility of nature. And that you know we don't actually need to sort of tiptoe around it. That you know, point of fact, we all sort of are part of the same system, and we should have license to to be part of that system together. Um, and I also really appreciate some of those insights that you brought in, and you mentioned also being adopted by the Lakota people um, earlier on in your journey and, and actually integrating those practices into what you do. As we think about how to actually inspire more folks to adopt a similar you know, intuitive grazing approach or regenerative approach to what they're doing, especially the, you know, people who are managing land, um, what do you think we can do to help others adopt similar practices? Well, I think that um, it's going to take a lot. <laughs> you know, um, farmers and ranchers are really up against so many challenges. And I think it's going to take one farmer at a time, one rancher at a time, and, um, and, and take not sort of a you know, the approach of like, you know, you, you know, kind of do this or get out approach is more like sit across the table and figure out what their challenges are and how you can problem solve to break down some of those barriers for change. And I, uh, I, I think that deep down, farmer, all farmers and ranchers want to do right. They want to do right by the land. Um, we are just sort of forced into a box and it takes a lot of risk to break out of that and forge a new way. Um, however, it, it's, uh, I see it's the only way forward. It's the only way forward in order to be, to have, to have healthy lands that are resilient in the face of climate change for the future generations is for agriculture agriculture to make a drastic shift towards soil health and regeneration but it's not going to just be a broad sweep because every region is different every ecology is different every situation that a farmer or a rancher is in is different so we really need to go one at a time and um, really enlist farmers and ranchers who have gone through the process and sort of come out the other end and are are successful and they're showing results um, from the the data on their farms and ranches 
that um, that that are showing that their work is 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 really paying off. And it's not just pay, it's not just about paying off for them because um, you know let's face it, agriculture, no matter how you look at it, is not going to be a you know, for the for the one that's actually growing and raising the food, it's not going to be an incredible, viable um, career path. So uh, it needs to be more. We need to take an, a more of a community based approach that it's to everyone's incentives that we have lands that are drawing down carbon, uh, providing habitat. And also providing food uh, for for our community, so that we can have local food security. And uh, gosh, if we didn't learn it in the last few years of the pandemic, then um, I don't I don't know what it's going to take. But uh, you know, it, it's it's not just we can't just leave it up to the farmers or, or ranchers. We need uh, large corporations governments to shoulder some of that risk and provide incentives, provide incentives for the farmers and ranchers that are doing good. And uh, we now know how to measure that uh, in the form of soil carbon or biodiversity or habitat. So how do we incentivize that so that it inspires other farmers and ranchers to make that transition? I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into that. You know, I, I like how you said um, and spoke to the fact that a lot of ranchers and farmers uh, see this as sort of as a risk to break out of the conventional way of doing things and forge a new way. You talked about ranchers who are already have made the leap showing the results. Um, is there, are there other like sort of challenges that keep these ranchers from joining this movement or changing the way they're doing things? What specific incentives do you think should be put into place that would help other ranchers um, make this leap? Well, I sort of started off to say that, you know, I'm a huge, huge supporter of grass-fed, grass-finished beef. Like we need to rapidly shift those animals out of the feedlot and put them on productive grasslands. We need to transfer the land that's being grown um, for feed to feed these animals in the feedlot, transfer them back to biodiverse carbon sequestering prairies. Um, so first and foremost, I would say that there needs to be an outlet for these animals that's grass fed. There needs to be um, more opportunities for these ranchers to sell their animals at a premium to someone who will market them as grass-fed beef. And there currently is not enough options. Um, the options are, you know, like what we've seen, it's it's the, it, you know, it's the buyers that are buying for the feedlot um, to be bought then by the, by the big four, um, by the JBL and the Cargill and so, uh, you know, there's this there's this monopoly in the beef industry, and we really need to break that up. We really need to shift um, the way we uh, purchase and look towards purchasing um, from local grass fed operations and uh, shift away from um, industrial raised meat. 
so I think first and foremost, there needs to be a uh, premium uh, given to ranchers for their livestock um, if if they are to finish them on grass. Um, and it's and, and it's not always easy because of rainfall and other things. So uh, it, it just there there needs to be more more options for ranchers because yeah it, it's it, it is a risk and and it may not always pay off. Um, so again, that's you know that's up to <laughs> corporations or governments to step up and support the the marketing of grass fed and um, you know maybe there needs to be some some education uh, more it, sort of more networking of grass fed ranchers to sort of help others come along and uh, you know back to that sort of one on one take everyone's individual operation and figure out how to make that more profitable by doing the right thing. I mean, how, how could anyone say no, if they say, okay, you're going to, if you do this, you are going to be more profitable in the, in the long run and your family legacy of ranching. Cause, cause so many ranchers in the West, it's a, it's a legacy and they are, very much connected to the land and their livestock. Like, you know, they, they have a serious heart connection to that place and those animals. So if you talk with them and say, Hey, if we, if we work with you and, and you are guaranteed a premium, if you make these changes, then, you know, why would there be any reason for them to say no? And how do you think about, you know, you mentioned sort of the, the need for the, the you know, price premium to be afforded to regenerative beef products. I mean, often in this conversation, then the, the question of affordability comes in. How do you think about that, that tension between or potential tension between affordability for um, mass food production um, and the, the need for a premium? Like, is there a trade off? Does it have to be more expensive or, or not necessarily? I mean, I think that's a much bigger discussion because why why is food so cheap? And food is not that cheap anymore. It's, you know, I think beef has increased by 20% or 25% in the last, you know, during the pandemic. So, so food, food costs have risen. And why is, is our beef that's raised regeneratively here locally and processed locally and sold locally, why is it more expensive than um, beef that's shipped in from out of the country and uh, raised industrially? Well, that's, that's a much bigger question. You know, that's a question of, um, you know, labor. That's a question of, uh, ethics. It's a question of government subsidies, of shifting those subsidies instead of subsidizing uh, poor agriculture practices. Um, we could be subsidizing uh, regenerative agriculture practices. So um, I think I think that's a much bigger, uh, a bigger question that needs to be addressed um, sort of at that national and global scale of why is unhealthy uh, processed food so much cheaper than wholesome nutrient dense food. 
and what are the actual costs, <laughs> uh, sort of unintended consequences of that cheap food? And is it really cheap because you're paying on the back end of your of your health and your and and your um, you know your ability to to function mentally and um, physically? And uh, so you know you're you're paying in, in other ways. No, that's super interesting. And so maybe off the back of that, so we know that you've done a lot of interesting work around, you know, policy and, and, and legislation. Um, and, you know, so I think, so off, off of the back of what you just said, definitely, I think there's, there's important to roll around subsidy shifting towards regenerative practices. But um, do, do you think that's sort of the most impactful policy change that you would want to see? Or what are some of the other things that you think are important to put in place from a policy perspective? Yeah, I think um, for for me, I've always had better luck, you know, looking more locally. I know, like California is is a great example because we have the only um, sort of lobbying group that is uh, for both climate and agriculture. I mean, there's plenty of of examples of you know lobbying groups for climate and there's plenty of examples of lobbying groups for agriculture. But here in California, we have um, the California uh, Climate and Agriculture Network, which looks at both together and how agriculture can actually be the solution to climate change. Uh, and we have groups like the Audubon Society that are um, helping to sponsor bills uh, for conservation ranching initiatives. So I think if we can look at uh, more of these uh, local solutions in your own county or in your own state, and then those can you know, hopefully then spread nationally, uh, then we can start to make make a shift. Uh, so, for instance, we um, like one example is we lease our land uh, in here because we're ranching in the Bay Area, um, and we did not. You know, this isn't this isn't family land that we're on. We have built our business really from the ground up. And gone out to to lease land from land trusts, from public agencies, from private landowners. So we we are only able to invest so much into um, the infrastructure that's necessary to uh, steward these lands for ecological uh, benefit. So um, there are uh, grants that uh, some of them are uh, conservation grants through the farm bill, but really um, as the cost of everything goes up, um, those really are not enough. So we really need to look at more options for grants for things that will um, help uh, these rangelands and help the ranchers with conservation practices. Um, and we need to constantly be adapting because what happened, what, you know, what worked five years ago doesn't necessarily work now. You know, we're seeing unprecedented heat, you know, at record temperatures in February and, you know, extended periods of heat and no, no moisture 
And so we need to constantly be adapting and figuring out ways to provide more um, assistance for, uh, you know, to, to manage these lands uh, in a way that for the benefit of, of all. Um, so, you know, some of those conservation practices, I mean, you know, it's kind of boring stuff, but it's like, you got to put up fences. So your cattle don't get on the highway. You got to make sure they have, uh, you know, water to drink. And so you got to run pipeline and put in troughs and all of that is really expensive and you can't really do invest a lot into these lands with just an agriculture income. So that's where if we want to keep ranchers viable, then at least we can invest in these public lands, these lands that are private or land trusts, so that they can continue in uh, regenerative agriculture. Um, so that's, you know, that's something that I know Audubon is, is working on and I'm, I'm assisting them with, with that and, uh, other, other groups as well are working on just ways that, you know, there can be more incentives for, for ranchers to, um, to, to be able to steward these lands for ecosystem benefits. One one uh, group that you briefly touched on in the beginning was um, corporations. And so we understand that you spend a lot of time working with corporations like Tesla, Patagonia, Google, and financial institutions, conducting tours, education sessions, help them think about how nature functions and their role in it. Um, what is their role in helping to drive regenerative practices? What do they get right? What would you like to see them do when it comes to setting corporate and investment strategy? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there's always those corporations that stand out. Um, And we've worked quite a bit with with Patagonia. And uh, one of the things I love about Patagonia is they really, you know, they don't just use regenerative as a headline <laughs> or a, you know a marketing buzzword uh, they're really working to educate so like you know instead of doing a commercial to try to sell their workwear they're going to specifically seek out real people that are practicing regenerative ag and they're going to you know sort of passively educate through also, selling a product. But, you know, when you watch it, it's more like, wow, that's really cool. I didn't know that that what regenerative agriculture was, or, um, you know, that's actually a real person there that's wearing that, uh, that work wear and who are they? And I want to know more about them and what they do. And if I can buy their meat. And so I think, um, you know, they're, they're great. And they're also going directly to the source, uh, of, of where they're sourcing and, and, uh, transitioning to sourcing raw materials from regenerative sources and, uh, Timberland boot company, the same thing. Uh, they have a full regenerative boot line. And so I've done work, work with them. And, uh, you know, so much of it is education, and I think that um, the and and who better to educate than these brands that already have so much ability to market, and they've got some of the best in the industry to make 
make media and make it beautiful and make it enticing. So why not use and leverage some of that media for good? And they can educate on ecosystem health and benefit and also sell a boot at the same time. I mean, you know, I have no issue with that um, because they're out front about it and saying, yeah, we're working to transition all of our raw materials to regenerative. So that's what I do a lot with these uh, corporations is I go and I speak and I speak about our work. I show that it is possible um, to, to do, cause a lot of people, they just don't, they just don't know. They just don't know that it is possible to do agriculture in a way that is not harmful to the planet. Um, and is actually not just not harmful, but it actually can regenerate, uh, life. So, uh, I, I think that corporations um, can use that and leverage that um, viewership to to educate and really start to shift the narrative um, and the consumer buying power. And they can also go and work with some of these farmers and ranchers and guarantee them a premium if they use certain uh, agri- you know, regenerative agriculture practices. And, you know, honestly, they, that would not hurt them at all. <laughs> it would only help them. Um, so it's just a matter of, uh, you know, taking the action. And, uh, and, and so, you know, I work, I've worked closely with Google for a number of years. We have sort of like this think tank, um, Every year, uh, the Google Food Lab, where uh, Google brings in a lot of the big corporations, a lot of the big players in food, and just kind of talks about the the trends and what you know what's going on and how how uh, farmers and ranchers can have have a voice as well. And I that's what I really see is a lot of times when I I travel around and I speak at these conferences or I speak to these um corporations or um these food these brands is that the farmer or rancher voice is uh very underrepresented. So um I think that you know I think that every brand should uh should have a regenerative farmer or a rancher that they at least have as as a consultant <clears throat> to uh look look at some of their bigger decisions and you know ask ask the questions and really provide some of that um, on the ground knowledge, uh, be, because, you know, people have these crazy ideas about <laughs> how, um, how things should be. And, and sometimes they just really need to be grounded in, uh, how, how, how things work and how things function with, with agriculture. <laughs> yeah, definitely agree. Love, love, love that suggestion. Um, I guess for, for the average person, I mean, what, what could, what could individuals do? I mean, obviously there's, purchasing regenerative products, is that, is that the, the main action or call to action you would have? Or are there other things that, um, yeah, that you, you advocate for on the individual level? Um, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of folks are 
you know, and, <laughs> you know, you can't blame them sort of, sort of hopeless um, because the, you know, we're not really seeing a big shift in um, uh, action towards these natural climate solutions. Um, uh, so I think I would say turn that hopelessness into action and everybody can plant a seed. Everybody can grow a plant. And whenever you grow a plant, then you're drawing down carbon. So, um, and then maybe that little plant on the balcony of your apartment will turn into, you know, talking to um, the the nearby corporation about planting a rooftop garden or investing in, um, you know, urban agriculture or uh, helping to, um, you know, support your local regenerative rancher. So I think, you know, everyone can make a difference and every, you know, the, the sourcing is big. Uh, and I would say no matter what you choose to eat, whether it's a carrot or a steak, journey to the source of that food and get to know who raised that food is, was it done um, with soil health in mind? Uh, was there, uh, you know, was it supporting biodiversity? Um, were the, um, the people that were growing the food um, treated in a way that was ethical and given fair wages and good living conditions? Because, you know, we really can't, I am going back to sort of the true cost of food. You know, I, I live and my children go to school in a community full of farm workers and different farmers treat their farm workers drastically differently. Um, and the, you know, the, the pay is different. The living conditions are different. And so you really need to look at all of that because we can't have regenerative agriculture with, you know, we talk about diversity in nature. Well, we also need diversity, uh, within our human workplace and our human communities, uh, because without that diversity, we're just going to be stuck in the same old rut. And so we need to really empower uh, these marginalized communities uh, and and have, you know, have them have a voice, have the farm workers at the table um, and and look at how we can not only transform the health of the land that we're farming, but transform the health and the condition of of farm workers, because you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I know it made the headlines during the start of the pandemic when, you know, the way that Tyson was treating these, these farm workers, um, and the, the death toll, um, that because they were not, um, taking, uh, safety precautions, however, it's back to business as usual. So how are we in this country allowing that, um, it's just, it just, it's just mind boggling that we're allowing people, human beings to live in these conditions and be treated this way. Um, so, you know, I, I, 
I, I, I kind of went off on a tangent there, but, um, uh, you know, I, I think that we, we really need to look, look at the whole, and that includes humans and the way the people that are growing our food are, are treated. No, that was well said. And we, I don't think, yeah, we really couldn't agree more. Um, Daga, thank you so much. This has been, you know, just incredible to hear, hear your journey and sort of your reflections on, on this and, and, and super sort of just tactically helpful as well. So we, uh, we love to end our episodes with a rapid fire set of questions. Um, so if you're ready for it, um, we'd love to ask her, what, what is your favorite carbon sink? Well, that's an obvious one. Soil. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Good, um, and good healthy black dirt. <laughs> there you go. Love that. Um, and what's your favorite book? Uh, well, besides my books, which we didn't get a chance to talk about, um, I have two books out, one called Dawn Again, Tracking the Wisdom of the Wild. Uh, and it's a, a memoir about my journey to, uh, you know, sort of belonging and finding my place. And then um, the young adult version, which is uh, Wolf Girl, Finding Myself in the Wild. So uh, I really encourage everyone to read those or listen to those. They're available anywhere books are sold. Um, so so those are some great books, uh, you know, and probably one of my favorite books. And, uh, you know, I cried so, so much during, uh, during this book is uh, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kummer. And it's just, it's just beautiful. It's just a beautiful book. And I just wanted to double down on your plug for, for Dawn again, just you have an incredible story. And I know we talked a little bit about it for a few minutes at the top of this, but, um, but yeah, really encourage everyone to, to, to pick that up as well. Um, if you, but just, uh, you know, continuing on. So if you had a magic wand, um, what would you do to scale natural climate solutions more quickly? Um, I would tra transition the way our children are educated and focus on nature-based education from the start and have that be an integral part of our education system. Mm, well said. And what gives you hope? Uh, what gives me hope? Well, my kids give me hope. Uh, they, uh, you know, they're, they're just, especially when we're out away from so much of what this uh, current environment is feeding them from technology and devices, when we sort of uh, shed all of that, and we're out uh, purely exploring a stream or walking through a forest um, or out on horseback moving cattle. It's like, you know, I, I just, I, I have a lot of hope because they, you know, they, I, I really see them come alive and, and uh, they're discover, you know, discover passions and laugh and, and just, I see the joy and happiness that comes with that sort of un, um, uninhibited uh, state of, of being. Oh, that, no, that, that's wonderful. I almost want us to end on that note, but our, our final question is, what is your prediction for the biggest nature-related headline of 2022? Or your hope for 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 the largest headline? <laughs> yeah, I'm not super hopeful. You know, just knowing kind of 
you know, what kind of documentaries are going to be coming out. And um, uh, so I, I guess, uh, you know, my, my hope is that uh, it's about, it's, it's soil that, that it's, it's, it's healthy soil. So, yeah. Yep. No, completely. Um, Donaga, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, just as a, as a final push, if you're intrigued by Donaga's journey, we really recommend reading her books Down Again and Wolf Girl, which we'll also link on our website. Um, and also just checking out Market Guard Family Grassfeds products online. Um, really a wonderful platform that you all are building. Donaga, thank you so much for joining us today. Really wonderful yeah. to have you. Thank you. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for joining today's episode of Solving Climate Naturally. Check out our website, solvingclimatenaturally.com. To see this episode's show notes, explore resources, and learn about upcoming episodes. Let us know what you think by connecting with us via email or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.